Open your Bibles again, if you will, to Genesis chapter 16, and we'll be there for uh, most of the message. You have probably discovered something that I've tried to remind us about in our email that goes out weekly. And by the way, if you've been coming to church and you're not on that email, we'd be happy to put you on there so that you can get a copy of the study guide. The study guide generally goes straight through the chapter and asks some questions that would help you just to see what's in the chapter. On Sunday morning, we don't cover everything that's on the study guide because we're trying to get down to the basic message that God is seeking to communicate to us. And I think that message this morning would be God's mercy despite our getting off track. You might say from the story there that these people are missing the mark at every point. Well, sometimes it happens that way. We make a poor decision and then we kind of get off track. So we're going to be looking this morning at misguidance in initiative. Initiative is a good thing. We've got to be sure it's going in the right direction. Misalliance in marriage, misconception in judgment, and then mercy in the midst of ministry. Today we want to consider the question of what happens when you run ahead of God, when you get ahead of Him on His plans. It's easy to do even for great men and women of the faith. There's a fine line between waiting upon the Lord and charging forth to do what I see needs to be done without proper consideration or prayer or counsel or whatever it might be. What if you had to wait a long time, as in Abram's case? What would you do then? We will see. I know one thing. Excuse me. Faith is living without scheming. Maybe some dreaming, but not the scheming. Now, living without scheming doesn't necessarily mean that you just sit back and relax. I can think of instances in my life early in the day when I was first married and before that I was trying to wait and trust in the Lord But I had some things in my life that were not pleasing to him. I was not following his ways in every instance. And God may be waiting on us to get some things straightened out in our lives. There would be all kinds of possibilities. As I think back, uh, I'm so thankful God didn't confirm any of my scatterbrain plans that I had, some of them that would have gotten me in serious trouble. I can look back and see him guiding me uh, during those times. Last week, we learned that God had made a covenant with Abram and that he was justified by faith. Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This was God's covenant. He made it. He will fulfill it. He is the one who's going to do it out of his sovereign grace. All Abram and Sarai had to do was just trust and obey, as we sang, and, of course, wait. But sometimes it's very difficult to wait. Even though the Lord's intentions had been communicated to Abram on four different occasions now. 
we see in Hebrews, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. What would cause Abram and Sarai, or ourselves, or anyone else to doubt God's promises? Lamentations 3.25 reads as following, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the person who seeks Him. It is good that one should quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. There are more than two dozen verses in Scripture that have to do with waiting on the Lord. But it's one of the most difficult things that we ever confront in the Christian life, waiting on the Lord. We've got a lot of promises that God is going to provide our needs, that He's going to take care of us, but still it's very difficult to wait on Him. And sometimes we charge forth in a wrong direction. Weak faith leads to impatience and then on to unbelief. And of course, our faith is strengthened as we camp out in the Word of God. Now, back in the early chapters of Genesis, we saw that unbelief and pride are two basic sins that have plagued mankind ever since the days of Adam and Eve. If it's not happening, I'll just make it happen myself. Sometimes that may lead to what I would call misguided initiative. I have a great idea as to how I can help God do what He promised to do. But does it follow God's ways and is it in accordance with His will in Scripture? And what about my motives? Or is it just my impatience and lack of faith to get what I want in the hurry-up mode? One of the most difficult things is to slow down, trust in the Lord, see where He wants me to go and how He wants me to get there. Now, many times in life you may have observed someone who looks like they're really being blessed who's not following God's ways. Be very careful with that because we don't always see the end of what God is doing. And sometimes God may be setting up a greater reproof down the road somewhere, especially for those who know the Word, who know what they should do, and yet they're not willing to do it. You could think of something like being unequally yoked with unbelievers, maybe in a partnership, in a business partnership. Well, I'd say get out while you're ahead. It's one thing to lose $5,000, but what if you lost fifty? or a hundred because God's reproof came on that unbeliever and because you were connected with him, it spilled over on you. Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. And it says that over and over in the Scripture. Difficult, but blessings accrue if we're willing to wait 
on the Lord, not in inactivity, but searching for His will, busy knowing the things that He's given us to do, including our responsibility, and trusting Him that He's going to guide us in these big decisions that come in our lives. Abram now is facing a big decision. God has promised to build a great nation through him, but he doesn't have any children. And he's longing for a son. And he's been waiting for a while now. Let's read again from the beginning of the chapter. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. It sounds a little bit like Sarai might be running into that same message from the enemy that we saw Eve confronted with back in the third chapter of Genesis. And that is the implication. It's not what he would say, but it implies that, you know, God is not really good. At least he's not being good to you. Because if God could provide a son or a daughter, then he ought to have been doing that long ago. And I think that Sarah has a little bit of that line of reasoning in her thoughts. And when that thought comes, it's easy to say, well, if God's not going to do it, then I'll do it myself. Now, if that's legitimate, then that's well and good. But in this case, God has given some promises that would preclude what is going to happen here. We see in verse 16 that Abram was 86 years old when Ishmael was born, and that was not even his promised son. Why did God wait until Abram and Sarai were so old before he would begin to fulfill the covenant? It would appear that God had to wait until they could die to themselves and their methods before he would begin his work. Dying to self means saying yes to God and no to self. Not by will, but thy will be done. And he, Jesus, said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Dying to my own desires and my own perspective on situations that I can't righteously change. If I can change the situation, and it's a good thing in accordance with God's will, then I would say that would be what we should try to do. Now, in the case of Abram and Sarai, as recipients of this promise, so long as they could still have a child by natural means, that is not faith. That's what they're going to look to in today's lesson, having a child by natural means. If Sarai can't have the child, we'll bring in somebody else who can have the child. That's not working through the promise. That's working according to the flesh. And the Scripture clearly teaches us that the old nature, the flesh, has to be put to death. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he lists a bunch of things there that have to be put to death. Now let's go to Galatians and get some help from Paul in understanding these things. 
Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, if they listened to the law, they would see from Deuteronomy 27 and 26, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Paul quotes that in Galatians 3.10. So if you're going to be a Judaizer and you're going to be following the law, then you've got to do it 100% perfectly. Let's go on verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. He was addressing these Judaizers, and they were ones who said, you can come to Christ, but you've got to still hang on to the Mosaic regulations, especially circumcision. Now, Paul is saying that these two sons that are born here, Ishmael born to Hagar, and later Isaac born to Sarah, uh, to Sarah by that time, they are a picture of two approaches to God. One is the bondwoman who's trying to live by the law to attain his own righteousness. The other is following the promise of God by faith you will live. And so we have this contrast between these two and those uh, (coughs) people in both categories who would uh, show the contrast in their lives. Those who depend on themselves, who can do it for themselves, that's what Hagar and her son represented. But those who rely on God's promises and continue to exercise faith, that's what Sarah and Isaac are going to represent. And we're going to see that God waits until we don't have any more human possibility of doing it ourselves in this case because Abraham is going to be 99 years old when the angel of the Lord comes back to him again to tell him he'll have a son the next year. And, of course, uh, Sarah is an older woman past the years of child-rearing. By that time, they can't do anything for themselves. They've just got to trust in the Lord. In today's lesson, they're still trying to work it out in the flesh to accomplish what they've seen God has promised to accomplish for themselves. Now let's go to Galatians 4 and 24. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. In other words, those who are in slavery are the ones who thought they could gain eternal life by keeping the law. And you remember some who fell into that category. We were looking at one guy Thursday evening the Jewish, uh, the lawyer, the Pharisee, who came to Christ and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it was pointed out in our study that you can't do anything to get an inheritance. You've got to be born into it. But these guys were thinking a lot about how they could do the law and all the men's traditions that had been added to it. Another would have been the rich young ruler who came to Christ. Christ said, keep the law. He said, all those things 
I have done ever since I was a boy. Now, in verse 26, we see the heavenly Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem above is free. And that's the heavenly city that's inhabited by those who have trusted in God's promise of salvation through the Messiah. Can you see the two tracks here? I'm either doing it myself, according to my own perspective, way to do it, or according to the law. Or I am trusting God to forgive my sinful attempts and my feeble efforts through the shed blood of Christ, who has come as the Messiah. Now, it's interesting that in the New Testament, the covenants of Abraham and David are never called old that I could find. The covenant made at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19 through 24, is referred to as the Old Covenant. Uh, you can see that in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 16. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And in Hebrews 8, it talks about the same thing. A new covenant, not like the one I made with them when I brought them out of Egypt. So Paul had some further explanation. Galatians 3.17, what I'm saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it's no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And we see that it's not nullified. Abraham is still coming to God through faith. And God justifies him on that basis. Well, what was the Mosaic law given for? It was a written code given to restrain the people from their sin. And it was also, we're told, a custodian or a tutor to point them toward the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. It was given for a time and it was not intended to be a means of salvation because nobody could do it. It was supposed to help them understand that they can't do it, and so they're going to need God's grace and forgiveness, which pictured by the sacrifice of the little lamb, pointing to the Messiah who's going to come and pay not only for Abraham's sins, but for all the sins coming down the road of the future there. The religious leaders in Israel had a vested interest in the law. If they could lord it over the people on the basis of the law, and they were the experts in the law, and they were the ones who told everybody what was right and what you could and couldn't do, even to taking a certain number of steps on the Sabbath day. They had some uh, minute details that they had added to the law. That appears to be the bondage that's represented by Hagar and Ishmael. Abram chose in his childless dilemma, to do something about it himself instead of trusting what God could do. He didn't have the law, but he didn't need the law at that point. He had God's promises that God had spoken to him. Galatians 
But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith that was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith 400 years before the law. But the law helps those who would be given it to understand their need for this justification through faith. And now God has graciously given us a new covenant. A new covenant based on His grace. Again, all of this is based on God's grace. But this is a new covenant that Christ now can work through having fulfilled all of God's law perfectly, having done what we can't do. So the new covenant is better, we are told, than the old covenant on Mount Sinai. How would it be better? The new covenant provides every spiritual blessing in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Him with every spiritual blessing in Christ, and there are many. Hebrews 6, 8 says, He is mediator of a better covenant established on better promises. Acts 1, 8 says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And it's going to be a greater package of the Holy Spirit than we saw in the Old Testament. There are many things here for which to be grateful to God. 1 Peter <clears throat> chapter 2 and verse 5. You are living stones built up into a spiritual house. You are a holy priesthood, and Christ is our high priest. We no longer have to go to Jerusalem, work through the high priest. You are a priesthood of believers, and you can go directly to God through the high priest who sits at his right hand. A better sacrifice by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place the perfect sacrifice for all sin. <clears throat> a better sanctuary. We talked about you being the living stones. And we see in Scripture, in Corinthians, Paul tells us your body is the temple of the Spirit. That's a good deal. We don't have to get in an airplane and fly to Tel Aviv to the temple. You can worship God wherever you go. And he said he will never leave you or forsake you. A better hope, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. And we want to get into those promises and see the hope that God has given us. Better worship. How about this? Instead of uh, having some sacrificial animals up here today on the altar, we can offer up to God a sacrifice of praise continually, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. You've got to admit this new covenant is a much better covenant than the old covenant. In fact, the people were scared to death at Mount Sinai when they heard God thundering on the mountain and Moses told them what they had to do. They said, we can do it, but they never did do it. Then we see a new ability to obey God, strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner person of the heart. A new freedom. You were called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. A new sanctification. By His will we are sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And finally, His law is written in our hearts. From Jeremiah 31, quoted in Hebrews 8, I will put my law into their mind and write them in their hearts. I don't have to be driving down the road saying, now what did that priest say yesterday? What was he teaching about the law? I better go back and check these things out because I might be getting ready to violate something. No, His law is in our hearts, especially if we're active about putting it in our hearts that we might not sin against Him. Well, the flesh is typically drawn to the world. Have you seen that? And the flesh likes to use the world's methods, like Peter did when he cut off the ear of the high priest's servant. Do you remember that? Man, he was ready to defend the Lord, and then he takes off, scared to death, denies the Lord following at a distance. This is the way the world likes to do it, so it's no surprise that Sarai turns to the world's method. That would have been a common thing in their day for some other woman to be taken as a wife and she would be the one to bear children and if she were a servant, then the child would belong to the mistress and to the master. So that's not too unusual for her. But where did it come from, this effort to solve her barrenness issue? Well, she had an Egyptian maid named Hagar You remember that uh, when Abram first came to the land of Canaan, there was a famine, and he took all of his family, his entourage, down to Egypt. But that was an ill-advised plan because immediately when he got there, he lied about his wife being his sister. He got in trouble with the king, Pharaoh, and he got thrown out of the land. But I'm assuming that while he was there, they picked up this Egyptian maid. Maybe she had put her faith in... Abram's God. I don't know about that. But I do know that there is trouble coming here. Excuse me. Now, I want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that the medical community should be ignored in the matter of child rearing. Medical community can help. What? uh, Excuse me. Child bearing. I doubt they could help too much with child rearing, give you some Ritalin or something. But child bearing. Now, what I'm saying is go to the Lord first. Contact the elders, get anointed, get some prayer, see what God will do. When we lived in Birmingham, I remember a young lady got married to one of my former students, and she was a little bit older when she got married, and she couldn't have any children. And she was very sad about that. I said, you need to go to the elders and get anointed. And I'll go with you. And Yvonne and I went with her and her husband. And the elders prayed over her. Simple thing. Anointed her with oil. And then the children began to come. And five years later, she called me up and told me I could slow down on the praying a little bit. Because she had four uh, by that time. So I don't know what God's going to do. But I do know that uh, God has appointed means by which He normally works in Scripture And we want to be sure that we follow those means. What should Abram and Sarah have done concerning the promises given to them? We know the answer to that question. They should have trusted God and and been willing to wait for His fulfillment. Rest in the Lord, Psalm 37. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in 
his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. My scheme may not be a wicked scheme, but it may be just me taking hold of things that where I need to wait on the Lord. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. There are many, many examples of these same kinds of verses in the Scripture. Now, Sarah had it correct when she blamed the problem on God. Do you remember Hannah, Elkanah's wife? couldn't have a child, and she was very distraught. And the scripture says in First Samuel, the Lord had closed her womb. But what she, did she do? She prayed and she waited. And then when the time arrived, she had a little boy dedicated to the Lord. And then she had three more sons and a couple of daughters. And through her son, Samuel, There was a national revival that came to Israel. So why did God wait and wait and wait and give Hannah all that heartache? I don't know. But you remember our definition of a blessing. Anything that draws you closer to the Lord. If you can't have children, if things are not working out according to your plans, turn that into a blessing. Because you know that God has a perfect timetable. If there are things you can do, well and good. But don't start fretting, especially when you see those who are prospering in their way of doing things. Well, we come to the misalliance in marriage. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, Her mistress became despised in her eyes. What obvious mistake did Abram apparently make concerning his wife's suggestion? We probably ought to meditate on that one a little bit because we husbands need to listen to the cautions of our wives. We need to listen to them very carefully in an understanding way that our, here comes the answer, prayers would not be hindered. It looks like Abram has listened to his wife's proposal without consulting the Lord. It didn't say he had consulted the Lord. It doesn't sound like he consulted the Lord. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Oh, I like this one. Mark it in your Bibles. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. That's kind of scary. It starts off pretty good at the beginning. But then you've got to trust and obey if this is going to open up God's direction for you. And then again in James 4.15, A guy is talking about going to a town and opening up a business and making money. And we're told here, instead, you ought to say, if it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. I wonder if Abram really consulted the Lord's will at this time. Now, I don't want to criticize him too much. At least 
he and Sarai were trying to fulfill God's promise. And it was a socially acceptable way at that time. It wasn't God's way, but it was acceptable in their culture. Well, how does that apply then to us? Before we look at the advisability of Sarai's suggestion, let's take just a quick look at the heart of a man of God who did it the right way most of the time, 1 Samuel 23, 1. Then they told David, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they're robbing the threshing floors. Then David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said, Go up and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Then after King Saul had died, after this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which city shall I go up? And the Lord said, To Hebron. And David went up there, and the men of Judah, and they, and there, the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. On seven different occasions, it said in that section of Scripture, David inquired of the Lord. That's what we want to be doing. When the answer doesn't come, we want to be like the widow woman and the judge. We want to be knocking on the Lord's door every day, asking Him for whatever it is we may need. Now, when we read something like the maid having a child to become an heir in the family, we think that's the most lame-brained idea that we ever heard. How in the world could that be? There are a few wives in our secular culture they would call in the maid to have a child because they were childless. There might be a surrogate mother and an embryo transplant until birth and something like that, but not doing what Abram and Sarah did. But do you know there are strange things in our culture that would seem just as unusual to them, like the morning after pill or something like that? So as we look at them, we've got to understand We've got our own blinders on, and sometimes we don't see ourselves as products of our culture. That's the reason we have to look in the Scripture here. In Scripture, we see that God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman for a lifetime. Somebody dies, that's okay. In the Scripture, we do see that God allowed, at times, a polygamous marriage but we never see one happy polygamous marriage. And you can easily understand why that would be. Here's the consolation for Abram, for Sarai, and for us. God shows His mercy upon us despite our doubt, despite our misdirection, despite the disobedience and desertion of His principles, whatever it may be, God is still a merciful God. And if we truly know Him, He's going to pull us back into the way through the power of His Spirit. Now, we can avoid some painful times if we're willing to check out the Spirit in the very beginning there. God can use a man who has had more than one wife. The greatest soul winner that I ever knew was a man who was divorced and remarried, as was his wife. He never spoke favorably of what he had done, 
But the Lord in His mercy used that man and his wife to lead many to Christ across the United States. It was amazing. Here's the testimony regarding Abram. Hebrews 6.15, And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. What? He didn't wait. What's going on here? But he did wait. You see, he didn't wait initially, and he stumbled around a little bit and went down to Egypt and did all kinds of things that we've seen along the way. But in the end, God in his mercy is giving Abram credit for having had faith in him. He's the father of the faith. And yet we see that really he's just like we are. He gets into some things, he does some things that just aren't on target. And there are consequences of that. Misconception in judgment. Here comes the um, consequences. Here come the consequences as we draw to the end here. Everybody thought they would be happy with that scheme to get a son or maybe a bunch of sons to build this great nation. But as it turned out, when the flesh is making the decision, there is opportunity for a lot of heartache and uh, misery. And that's what we're going to see right here. We're in verse 5 and verse 6. Sarai was not happy. In verse 5, she realized that her contrivance to get a child was wrong. She came down hard on Abram, blaming him for the outrage that was perpetrated against her by Hagar. And she called on the Lord to judge him for what he had done. She's the one that suggested it. Then she came down hard on the Egyptian girl, uh, showing her harshness. Hagar was not happy. She despised her mistress in verse 4. Then in verse 6, she was catching flack from Sarai, and finally she fled the scene to go back to Egypt, it looked like, from the direction she was taking. Abram was so perturbed with the whole business in verse 6 that he did what henpecked husbands are prone to do. Do you know what it is? Just give it up. Give up my responsibility. You do whatever you want to do with that woman. I don't want to hear any more about it. I don't know if he actually said that, but it looks like he's just kind of given up on the thing and doesn't offer any leadership at this point. So we see mercy in the midst of misery, and the remainder of the chapter tells of God's mercy on Hagar. In future episodes, we're going to see God's mercy on Abraham and Sarah. But right now, we close up with God's mercy on Hagar. She was just kind of a pawn in this scheme. In verse 9, the Lord advised her to go back to Sarah and submit to her authority. Some people would say this is the pre-incarnate Christ talking to her. We see it's the angel of the Lord, and then all of a sudden, it's the Lord said. Well, I don't know about that, but it's pretty authoritative, and it's coming from the Lord, as we see in some of those verses. In verse 11, a child would be born to Hagar named Ishmael, meaning God will hear. Verse 13, Hagar called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Thou art the God who sees. He sees our need, and He's promised to supply all of our needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So we're going to see next week, in our next lesson, that when Abraham and Sarah were well stricken in age, that's when God could work. 
Because then it's clear it's of grace. They had nothing to do with it when Isaac was born. I mean, they were obviously man and wife, but it was God's grace that allowed Sarah to conceive at that time in her life. What about you this morning? Do you have some schemes that you're seeking to enact in order to help God do what He needs to do? Uh, Be very careful uh, with those. Have you surrendered your will to God? To say, not my will, but thy will be done. In other words, have you died to self? And are you waiting on the Lord to exercise faith and trust in Him? Come to Him. Renew your faith. If you have never come to Him, I would invite you to come this morning in true repentance and saving faith. Maybe there's a situation in your life that you really need to turn over to the Lord and trust His promises. And maybe you need to renew your efforts to get into the Scripture, see what's there, start claiming those promises, start seeking the Lord through the Scripture, get some wise counsel, get anointed by the whatever it might be that God would be showing you to do. Remember to be patient, Isaiah 30:15. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. You know what the rest of that verse says? But you would not. Many Israelites heard the truth, knew what they ought to do, but they would not. Because they couldn't die to self. They had their own plans. Let's pray. Lord, it's been a difficult lesson for me because I've got lots of ideas and plans from uh, early days and I realize now that uh, I've got to pray. I've got to seek you. I've got to be well convinced from the Scripture that this is your plan, whatever it may be, that this is your best. Lord, I want to pray for all of our young people here this morning and I want to ask that you would give them a great trust in you And in your promises given in Scripture, I want to pray that they would be so tuned in to the Word that they could follow your ways and your will without any deviation. I pray, Lord, that we will not listen to the lie that Satan tells us that you are not good or that you are not good to us because you haven't done thus and so, whatever it is. We thank you, Lord, that we're not in hell today. And we thank you that we never have to be there according to the shed blood of Christ if that's been applied to our hearts. And I would pray, Lord, that if there's somebody here this morning who knows in his or her heart that they've never surrendered their life to you through Christ, that this would be the time, that this would be the moment of realization where our own ways will lead us. Lord, thank you that we can come to you and ask your forgiveness for our sin because we acknowledge that we're sinners. Ask you to cleanse us. Ask you to take control of our hearts and make us the kind of people that you want us to be. And then we can see ahead a bright future 
because we know that you have promised that all things will work together for good in our lives. Lord, many things to pray about. We ask now that you would guide us through your spirit as we go to a time of prayer. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.